Alright, Heavenly Father, we uh, come uh, expectant to learn. Um, we're so privileged that we can study the Bible. And uh, the Bible is in many ways difficult to understand, so I, we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge and ultimately in our wonder and appreciation of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so um, we're going to do a four-part series on the book of Judges. I kind of mapped it out, and we're not going to actually hit Judges until like the third lesson. Um, so this is really, in many ways, an introduction to Judges. And um, the first thing I want to do is I want to situate Judges in the story of the Bible, because Judges is, in many ways, a very strange book. Um, and so how do we understand Judges in the overall story of the Bible? And so let me just very quickly review. The story of the Bible is very basic, right? So you have Eden. The story begins in Eden. And um, uh, humanity is with God. And then they rebel. They sin. And so they're expelled east of Eden, right? They're out. They're kicked out of Eden. And then the whole story of the Bible is how God brings them back into Eden, right? Um, and the story ends with the, 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 um, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth, right? And so how do we understand the Old Testament? Uh, the Old Testament, then, is dramatizing that basic story. Because I suppose it could be that after Adam and Eve leave Eden, God redeems them and brings them back into his presence, but he doesn't do that, right? Instead, what happens is this uh, unfolding dramatic story in the, of the, of the, in the Old Testament, and it's basically to get this basic story into our hearts, uh, enliven our imagination. And sort of the analogy that I have is I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Cloud Atlas. Has anyone seen the movie Cloud Atlas? No? All right, well. Uh, Cloud Atlas is this very interesting science fiction movie. Uh, I think it came out like two years ago. And it's basically, uh, there, there were a lot of mixed reviews. Like, basically, it was very polarizing. You either loved it or you hated it. And part of the reason why it was polarizing is because um, it's basically six storylines, and they're all simultaneously um, going six stories in six different timelines and they're all parallel and they're all the same story but in told in a different way right um, and I and, and for me watching the movie it was a really powerful experience to see um, you guys can it's going to be hard for you guys to see if you, you want to scoot that way okay um, uh, for me it was a very powerful experience just to see uh, the same story told six times over and over and over again, right? Or here's another one. You guys have seen The Sixth Sense, right? Yes, okay. Um, the Sixth Sense, if you haven't seen the movie, I won't ruin it for you, but at the end there's essentially a massive twist. And once you see the massive twist, the fun is you can watch the movie again and see it in a whole new light, right? The ending <coughs> completely changes the meaning, or it illumines the meaning of the whole story. Another one is, um, what's the movie? Fight Club, right? There's another twist, there's a twist, similar-ish twist, uh, in the end of Fight Club, and then you can watch the movie again and see it in a new light. That's the Bible, right? If you see the end, which is Jesus Christ, the redemption of Jesus Christ, then it, it illumines the rest of the story. And in many ways, the story is progressing, and it's culminating in Christ, but once you see Christ, then you understand the full story. So, that helps us to understand Judges. Because Judges, in many ways, again, is a very puzzling story. Um, 
So, here's basically the story of the Old Testament, which is from Egypt to the Promised Land, it's essentially an allegory of salvation. So, uh, uh, you have enslavement in Egypt, then Israel wanders around in the wilderness, right, the Sinai wilderness, and then they enter into the Promised Land through the conquest, and what then is the purpose, and that is the story of, of salvation, right? So that... Um, it's sort of like this is the equivalent. Uh, Egypt is away from God. Promised land is back to God. And then they're wandering towards the prom- they're, 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 they're journeying to the promised land. And what happens is, uh, Judges, if you, if you understand Judges, Judges is an interruption in this story. It's a beautiful, neat story, right? They're in Egypt, they wander, and then they enter the promised land. Except Judges basically says they didn't enter the promised land. That's the story. They never truly came into the promised land. Right? I don't want to exit because I, I need the, the, the chart. And everything else that follows in the story, the story of King David, King Saul, Solomon, the two kingdoms, exile, is basically playing out what happened in Judges. So Judges is really pivotal in the story of the Bible. All right, so in order to, so that's sort of the big overview picture. That's my thesis. At the end, you're going to say, you're going to feel the same sense of revelation in the sixth sense, hopefully, um, that you're going to say, oh, I understand judges, right? Um, So let me just back up. And first, we have to understand that the story of Israel is our story. Because there's a sort of um, reading of the Bible that says that Israel is essentially... um, Israel is essentially a, a failed attempt by God. Like he tried it with Israel, but it didn't quite work out. And so we have a sort of moralistic reading, and it, it, it doesn't seem relevant to us. But I want to show you that um, Israel is our story. And therefore, this, this, this journey from Egypt to the Promised Land is really a story of us, of our salvation. And so let me just uh, demonstrate this to you very quickly, run through some passages. Um, let me just show you three passages uh, let's start with First Peter. Uh, Ashley, can you read that for us? So this is to, sh- to demonstrate, right, that that the uh, the geopolitical ethnic people of Israel is us. We we are they, right? This is our story, and not just the uh, not just the kind of uh, English lit um, allegorical connection, but that we are vitally them. Okay, so. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yes. So I've underlined for you some of the key descriptive pass- uh, uh, descriptions, attributes that Peter, the apostle, applies to the church. This is the Gentile church. And then notice the parallels to uh, the Old Testament description of Israel. Uh, David, can you read that for us? Exodus 19. Yes, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Yeah, notice that people, uh, Peter deliberately applies the language of Israel to the Gentile church. Right? He explicitly uses the exact language, the exact imagery. Right, which means what? That that uh, the church is the new Israel, and Israel is the church in the in the Old Testament. We are one people. This is our story. Okay. Uh, let me just read to you one more passage. This, this would be Hebrews 
11, right? Because I think when I was growing up, I used to think of Israel uh, as so distinctly different than the church, because Israel is this geopolitical state. We are not a geopolitical state. Israel is in the land. They care about the land. We care about spiritual things, right? So they're separate stories. But uh, I want to show you that it's really the same story. It's like uh, it's like Cloud Atlas. I don't know why I keep evoking Cloud Atlas, but Cloud Atlas, I, for me, thinking about it in terms of the gospel and the Bible, it was so powerful for me because it's 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 like you see the parallel. They're different stories, but they're the same story over and over and over again. And that's what it is, the Bible. So Allison, Hebrews 11. Hebrews in general is a very difficult book to read. Maybe one day we'll do a Bible study, I mean, Sunday school on Hebrews, but... Uh, Yeah, so let me kind of unpack that uh, passage for you. Uh, verse 10 is very critical. It says that basically, the promise was given to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. Uh, but Abraham knew, according to Hebrews, that all along it was never just physical land, but that it was, um, that the land was symbolic. That the land was a picture of something else. Elsewhere in Hebrews, it goes on, it, it describes the land of Israel as a heavenly country, and so the land is a picture of communion with God, right? This Canaanite, this Can- the land of Canaan, the, the promised land. That that um, verse ten says that Abraham was looking for this city that God is going to make, which is what at the end of the Bible in Revelation twenty twenty one, you have the New Jerusalem. And so that just shows you that that the whole saga of Abraham and his children entering into land is really a story of salvation. Okay. And so let's go through the basic story very quickly. We're going to run through it. Let's start with Egypt. And I want to show you that Egypt is a picture of our life in sin. Okay? So notice the way Paul describes salvation. Um, and think about the resonance it has with the story of Egypt. So, Carlos, I don't know if you have a handout. There you go. Sure. Carlos, can you read Romans 6? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. Well, so I'm going to interrupt you. Sorry. <laughs> so, so I mean, I, I think I have it underlined, right? Yes. Um, notice that Paul describes our former condition away from Christ, apart from salvation, as what? We were slaves of sin, right? Um, he evokes this metaphor of slavery, is he saying, is Paul fishing around? Is he saying, you know, what really describes sin? Hmm, I know slavery. No, he is a deeper theologian than that. He is thinking about the story of Exodus, okay? So keep going. Um, to the standard of teaching. Okay, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and haven't been set free from sin. Yeah, so let me stop right there, right? So notice, he says, how do we describe salvation? He says, it's like emancipation. It's freedom. It's release from slavery. And again, he's being very deliberate. He's being very thoughtful. He's thinking about the story of 
of the Old Testament. Keep going. Have become slaves of righteousness. Yeah. So, Paul says that salvation is freedom from slavery, that we were once slaves to sin. Jesus says in John 8.34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That Christ set us free then to worship him and to know him and obey him. And so is this just a metaphor? The answer is no, right? It's it's echoing. Uh, Exodus 6, where are we? Gary, can you read Exodus 6? Say, therefore, to the people of Israel. Oh, and let me just set it up. I mean, so what is Exodus? Exodus is basically the story of Israel in Egypt, right? And notice how their time, oppression in Egypt is described, right? Keep going. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Yeah, so notice that redemption and deliverance from slavery (coughs) are interchangeably the same thing. Right? So that Israel was not just a physical captive in Egypt, but they were spiritually enslaved in Egypt. And if you read the rest of the uh, uh, that chapter, Exodus six, it goes on. Why does why does God want to rescue uh, Egypt? I mean Israel out of Egypt. I remember. Uh, has anyone ever seen the Charleston Heston movie, uh, The Ten Commandments? Right. And then there's like that prologue. This guy comes out in front of the curtain. He's talking, and he's like, "Oh, this story shows us the evils of slavery, right? And, and the, the human longing for freedom. And yes, of course, but it's way deeper than just that, right? Ultimately. Um, Israel was rescued not just out of bondage, but so that they can worship God, right? So God, in fact, says specifically through Moses, let my people go that they may worship the Lord, right? So uh, Egypt is a picture of life and sin. The wilderness, the wilderness, the 40 years of wandering around the wilderness is then a picture of uh, the Christian life. So now we've been saved, and here we are. What do we do in this Christian life? We are in the wilderness, right? Um, and notice... Uh, 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 I'm gonna, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3 is a very uh, difficult passage to read. It's a little bit hard to understand. But basically, Hebrews, the writer is saying, uh, he's warning the church. He's saying, don't fall away. Because there was a temptation to uh, stop believing in Jesus, to stop following him. And in order to sort of pound and drive home that lesson, don't fall away, he evokes the example of Israel in the wilderness and he says, just like Israel in the wilderness, uh, don't be like them. Because in the wilderness, they fell away. They stopped believing. They stopped following after Christ. Um, so let's read Hebrews 3. Where are we? Winnie, can you read Hebrews 3? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the belly. On the day of testing in the wilderness, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, meaning you to fall away from God. Yeah. So, he's telling the New Testament church, don't fall into the same trap that Israel fell into, which is that in the wilderness, they hardened their hearts, they tested God, right? He's talking about uh, Mass and Meribah, the, that event. Um, and he says, you know, uh, hold fast to God. And I think in many ways, the uh, story of the wilderness is a beautiful picture. Because if you think about it, what is the wilderness? The wilderness is, we're not in the lush, beautiful land of the promised land. We're in this dry and thirsty land. We're beset on all sides by temptations, by uh, trials. And that's the Christian life. We're not yet in the new creation. 
we're not yet in this glorified, resurrected world that Jesus one day will bring about. Um, and then the, the, the next part is the conquest. And here we're talking about the books of Judges and uh, Joshua and Judges. Right, so, so far we've gone through Genesis, through uh, uh, no, uh, what is it, Deuteronomy. And now we're looking at Judge, uh, Joshua, which is, Joshua is the leader who follows Moses. He leads the people into conquest in Israel. And then Judges is really a continuation of that story. This is a huge topic. So we're going to spend the whole of next week just on this idea of the conquest because it brings up a lot of problems. But here's what I want to propose to you, okay? So if this story, if this is an analogy of salvation, and this is the promised land, and the promised land is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, what's going to happen before the new heavens and the new earth is brought about? What's going to happen? Yeah, there's going to be a coming of Christ, but what is he going to do? Judgment. Judgment. It has to be. Because right now, uh, we have evil, we have um, injustice, we have um, uh, people who hate God. And so God must purge and cleanse all of that wickedness from the earth to make it a beautiful, good place. So there has to be judgment day, right? And that judgment day is depicted, right, in a kind of allegorical and analogical way in the conquest, right? And that's a huge concept. This bothers a lot of people. So we're going to spend the whole of next week just looking at that. But basically, the bloody conquest is a picture of that day. Um, I don't think I have any passages. Yes, I don't have any passages because... I'm going to save the firepower for next week. Why is it called conquest? Are you, are you using just... Oh, so, so, oh, let me, so, here, um, so here's a map. <laughs> this is Egypt. This is the promised land, right? This is the wilderness. And this is the River Jordan, Right? It's a very good map, thank you. Okay, um, <laughs> so uh, uh, the the promised land, just like, and so this is what bothers a lot of people. Just like uh, uh, North America was not an empty land, there were people, right? There were native residents, the Canaanites. So in order for Israel to come into this promised land out of Egypt, they had to conquer it. What do we mean? We mean uh, bloody destruction killing, you know, massacres. So, that's what we mean, yeah, by the conquest. Um, so, that's Judgment Day. And then finally, the Promised Land. Um, what does the Promised Land picture of? Uh, it's a picture of eternal life. It's a picture of uh, the new heavens and new earth, the new creation that Jesus Christ is going to usher forth at the end of human history. Uh, let's read Deuteronomy 8. Um, Deuteronomy 8 is describing the promised land and the description isn't, I don't know, it isn't incidental. It isn't just like um, geophysical details that the writer wants to let us know. It's not like uh, narrative descriptions where like, you know, sort of like atmospherics helps you to appreciate it. The description is very theologically purposeful. Okay? So, uh, where are we? Uh, Jeff, can you read Deuteronomy 8? 
For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of those hills you can dig copper. Right. This is the promised land. Now I want you to see that Canaan is described as a garden-like land. Do you notice that? And it's a land overflowing with abundance and plenty and beauty. And one of the descriptions of the promised land is a land flowing with milk and honey. And for us, we sort of shrug our shoulders. Uh, in the ancient world, milk and honey were the two most sort of luxurious things, agricultural produce that you could have. Because what do you need for milk? You need cows, right? Uh, livestock is very difficult to maintain, right? Because um, you need a lot of land. And so the fact that milk is, milk is a relative treat. But the fact that milk is flowing, that's an amazing description. Honey. Actually, uh, uh, how do you obtain honey? I mean, we're, we're such city slickers, right? But honey comes from bees, right? Uh, so honey is the sweetest natural substance there is. It is extremely difficult to obtain. We sort of semi-industrialized it. But uh, it was extreme rarity. And again, that honey is flowing. So this is a land of just overflowing produce. And notice the description of, 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 of the land is strikingly similar to Eden in Genesis. Let me read to you. I don't have the passage uh, printed, but let me just listen, okay? Let me read to you the description of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made a spring, uh, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So notice that in the garden it's lush, there's a lot of vegetation, there's lots and lots of food. Right, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen, verse 10 uh, in chapter 2. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So, in this garden land, there's plentiful water. There's a river. Notice that evokes the same thing in Deuteronomy, right? There's brooks of water, there's fountains and springs. It's not the dry and thirsty land of the wilderness. Um, and then it goes on, right? And if you look at verse 9 in Deuteronomy 8... The, uh, at the end, it's always kind of puzzled me because it's like a random ad- added detail. There's, what is it? There's iron and there's copper. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever played Civilization or a video game, but basically it's just like this random, there's there's iron and there's copper, right? Um, but that description is not a throwaway description. It's specifically evoking Eden because listen to what it says in Genesis. Uh the name, so he's talking about the rivers, right? The one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, listen, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, bdellium and onyx stone are there. So in, in Eden, there's precious metals. And then again, in, in the promised land, there's precious metals. So that's the connection. And this connection is made for us explicit in Joel 2. I have it printed for you. Joel says the land, speaking of the, the, the promised land, is like a garden of Eden before them. Um, two other passages, Ezekiel 36-35, speaks of the land as the Garden of Eden. Micah 7-14 <coughs> describes the land as the Garden Land. And remember, what was distinctive about Eden is that God walked with his people. And what was right in the middle of the Promised Land? Calvary? Huh? The cross? 
during the time of the Old Testament. <laughs> uh, in the city of Jerusalem, the, the most significant building. The temple. What does the temple represent? The holy, the holy. Right. The presence of God with his people. So here they are. They're back in the garden. And God is with them again. That's the story. Okay? That's a beautiful story. But the story gets interrupted rudely by the book of Judges. And the whole point of the book of Judges is that God's people fail to enter the promised land. They should have conquered the promised land and enjoyed the fruits, but they don't. And so that's the story. And some of you are saying, wait, I don't understand. I thought Israel did inhabit the promised land. Um, and the answer is no, they didn't. And if you read through the Bible, it tells us that again and again, Israel never truly entered the land. And how can the Bible say that? Because the land has a dual meaning. The land is, first of all, land, but it's also a picture of communion with God. Right? So let's read Hebrews 4. Do I have it printed? Yes. Hebrews 4. Um, actually, Hebrews 4 is also difficult to understand. And the whole chapter is about this one point, which I sort of condensed down to a single verse. So if it doesn't completely make sense, uh, I will try to flesh it out for you. So where are we? Uh, Dorothy, can I, can I have you read Hebrews 4? Four. I'm going to interrupt you multiple times. So. Four? Okay. Yes, verses eight. Sorry, verse 8. I'm pausing to give you time to interrupt. Four, I will interrupt you. You don't interrupt me. <laughs> no. Boy, if Joshua had given them rest. Okay, so let me interrupt there. Okay. So this is very important, right? But it says that if Joshua, right, who succeeded Moses and was to lead the armies of Israel into the promised land, conquer the land. It says if Joshua had given them rest, and the writer of Hebrews is using the word rest as a metaphor of the land, okay? So, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit later. Just so that you know what's going on. Okay, so if Joshua had given them rest, meaning if Joshua had actually led them into the promised land, if he had actually conquered the land and settled the people, keep going, God assuming, would, me, meaning he didn't, right? But keep going. God would not have spoken of another day later on. Okay, that's very significant, right? So what he's saying then is he's talking about rest as a day. What day would that be? Seven. Yes. Um, Sabbath day, right? The day of rest, the seventh day. He says, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Meaning that Israel never entered the land because they never got into that day. And one day they will. That's what uh, Hebrews is saying, right? God spoke of another day. It's going to happen in the future. Keep going. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Yeah. I think this is very significant because at the time of the writing of Hebrews, this is the New Testament, what has already happened? Not only judges happened, but what? There was King David. There was King Solomon. If you're familiar with the story of King Solomon, there was peace. His, he had an empire. But the writer of Hebrews is saying they never truly entered the land. They never truly secured the promised land because there's another day spoken of later, right? Um, Michael, I lost you at the Sabbath. Okay, good. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, okay. Related to Sabbath. Okay, so, all right. So, uh, Hebrews is, is evoking this metaphor of the Sabbath. Okay? So, let's think about the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath day? 
It's the Lord's Day, but I mean, it, it, what are you supposed to do? Don't do anything. Okay, good. So, well, not really. Well, you, you rest, right? You rest, okay? But that word rest is deeply theologically, tingly significant. You don't just lay down inert, right? Um, what else do you do on the Sabbath? You worship the Lord. That's right. God first. That's right. So, the, the idea is this, right? You're laboring. Right, and you're toiling, you're sweating, and then now you rest. And this rest isn't, I mean, the, the, re- the rest is like a blessed rest. It's like, it's like, I suppose, at the end of a long day, you've achieved something really great at work. And then you sit down, you, you drink a cup of coffee, and you just, you're in revelry. You just enjoy what you just did. Right, it's this moment of of incredible blessing, and that day of rest is supposed to be a day to worship God, right? And so, therefore, the Sabbath rest, the Sabbath day, was always a, a picture of heaven. It was always a picture of salvation in Christ, because one day we're going to enter that Sabbath day. If you look at the Genesis account. Every day it says, and it was morning and it was evening, the, uh, and then the next day, right? But the seventh day, the description doesn't have that refrain, it was morning and it was evening. The, the seventh day never has an ending. It's an eternal day. It's an unending day. And that's a picture, again, of our of, our, of, of what's, what's coming, new creation. Does that sort of semi-answer your question? Yeah, but there's that saying that if they ever did go into promised land, there would be no such thing as Jesus Christ coming to for salvation. Because they already accomplished it. Very good. Okay. okay so <laughs> you're, what you're thinking along the same lines that I'm trying to get everyone to think about. All right. So this is a drama of salvation. Okay. So God rescues the people out of slavery. He says, I want you to wander around faithfully, avoiding you know, temptations and tri- I mean, uh, enduring trials. I want you to evoke, uh, uh, invoke the conquest, meaning enact judgment day and then I want you to enter the rest the Sabbath day salvation in Christ new creation new heavens and new earth that's right so that's the story right notice there's no Christ right there's no sal- there's no savior Israel you enter the promised land on your own that's why judges is in the book because what does judges say they never did it. That's right. They physically entered the land, yes, but they never did it in a deeper spiritual sense. That's the point, right? But that's so the, that's the trick: is that if they did, then they, they could boast about they their couldn't. own doing. They couldn't. Right, but that's the trick: is that it's meant to fail because otherwise we can claim if that. You re- if you read Deuteronomy, it's very bizarre, right? Deuteronomy is this sermon that Moses gives to the people before the conquest, right? So it's like this farewell sermon. And it's very strange. Moses says, I want you to go in, I want you to conquer the land, I want you to obey the Lord, and then he says, but you're not going to do it. You're going to fail, and all of these curses are going to come upon you. You're going to be exiled from the land. And then he says, but then God will call you back. So, we were ne- they were me- never meant to do it. So then this, you might say, well, why did God make them go through this drama? 
because scripture is like watching Cloud Atlas, right? <laughs> because when you read, because you know what it is, it's 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 a thousand year drama in which you're 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 learning again and again about the necessity of Christ. The whole story, right? It's like this agonizing experience. There's the promised land. You can get to it. And they're trying to get to it. And they fail again and again and again. And it's to prepare them. It's to show them. It's a thousand year drama to prepare for the true Joshua, the true Savior. I'm going to, I'm going to get to it, right? So I haven't even complete, I haven't even gotten to the twists. Right. So, okay. So. Let me just read to you Hebrews 4. Um, I'm just going to read it super fast, okay? So this is the full context of Hebrews 4. Those who formerly received the good news failed to enter the land again because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, this is Psalm 95, so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Right? It's an example to Israel, I mean to, to the church, right? Don't be like Israel who failed to enter the promised land. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The whole point of Hebrews is that we, the church, are in the wilderness right now and we're marching, marching, marching into the promised land and the whole point is that one day we will go in. How are we going to get in, right? And this is the whole point of the story, is that when Israel gets into the promised land, what happens in, in Joshua a little bit, but what really happens in Judges is that they don't fully conquer the Canaanites. They allow the Canaanites to remain for various reasons. We'll get into that third class. And because they allow the Canaanites to remain, what happens? Those Canaanites end up becoming a thorn in the side of Israel. They become oppressors, right? And when they become, uh, when they experience oppression, when they experience sorrow, it's like they're back in Egypt, right? So that the whole story of Judges is that the promised land actually becomes like Egypt. They're back in Egypt, they're back under oppression because of sin and, dis- sin and disobedience. And each time God, Israel cries out to a God, to God, and then God sends a savior, right? So that's the whole story of Judges, right? It's all of these different savior figures, but each savior figure is completely inadequate, especially the latter ones. Um, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson are particularly deeply flawed people, right? And they don't ultimately rescue the people, and it happens again and again, right? This cycle. It's, there's actually seven cycles in, in Judges where each savior gives a temporary respite, temporary salvation, but it all falls apart. And then it happens again, and it all falls apart. And each iteration is worse than the one before. And it culminates in Samson. If you know Samson, Samson's like the worst of all the judges. Right? <coughs> um, I mean, he's, he, he, he's muscle-bound, but he's like the most depraved of all the judges, right? And so the whole point is that um, human saviors can't do it. Therefore, God needs to send um, a divine savior. So what is the solution? It's Jesus Christ. Let me read to you uh, from Matthew chapter 2, because this is so profound. And I think this is one of the deepest passages in all of the Bible, 
and it says so much because I want you to see how the story of Jesus is articulated in terms of this drama. Okay? Listen to Matthew 2. This is the very beginning of the story. Remember the drama is um, uh, uh, Joseph receives a dream, Herod wants to kill Jesus, so Jesus and his family escape. Okay, listen. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Right? And so he arose, Joseph, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Now, again, is that just an incidental detail? Why go to Egypt? Is Roman power not there? It certainly is, right? Um, uh, so why Egypt? It's deeply theologically significant that Jesus went to Egypt. You know why? Because listen to what Matthew tells us, right? Um, and so he departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill, listen, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. And he quotes Hosea 11.1. 1. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in Hosea 11, he's talking about the experience of Exodus. And in Exodus, God specifically tells Pharaoh, let my son go, because Israel is my son. Let my son, let, let him come out. And then the gospel writer Matthew looks at the story of Jesus going down into Egypt, and he says that verse, which you thought was about Israel, is really about Jesus. Why? Because... Jesus went into Egypt to reenact the story of Israel. So, so Jesus leaves Egypt and he goes into the wilderness. And he faces what? Trials and temptations. And does he obey the Lord completely, fully? Yes. And then through the wilderness, he conquers sin and death. How does he do it? He does it on the cross. And then he enters the promised land, which is his resurrection. So what Israel failed to do, Jesus Christ did perfectly. He is the true Israelite. He's the new Israelite. And so that's the story of the Old Testament. It's the story of the constant reiteration. David couldn't bring his people into the promised land. Solomon couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. All the judges and judges couldn't do it. No one could do it. And in the end, they go into exile, right? And the fact that they go east is very significant because that's the same story. Just like Adam was expelled east of Eden, Israel is expelled east of this new Eden, right? So what you have then is you have Adam, he fails. And, and then he's uh, sent to east, east of Eden. Then you have Israel. He fails, or, you know, the corporate entity, of the people of Israel fail, and they go into exile, into Babylon. And then you have Jesus. But he succeeds. And then he leads us into the new earth. That's the story. Why not just go from here to here? Why have this story? Because it's to drive the truth that we need Jesus Christ into our hearts and into our minds. That's why you have this epically long story. <laughs> That's why if you're parents, 
you have this enormous book that you could read to your child, but all the time you're telling them, really, it's about Jesus, it's about our need for him, because every human savior fails, and therefore we need a divine savior. Any questions? I I was really nervous, I wouldn't need the time, but... Uh, too nervous, I, I probably rushed way too fast. But um, any questions or any thoughts? Is there a comparison that could be made as far as like us as individuals going through a process of being a slave, let's say, to yeah, alcoholism? Yeah, so, so the story happens again. Um, but this time we have a better Joshua. Actually, Jesus' name is Joshua, right? Joshua is uh, the anglicized version of Yeshua. So Jesus is. So we have a better Joshua. He's 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 leading this army. In uh, Ephesians six, Paul says we don't fight against flesh and blood, right, but against the powers and principalities. So we're involved in us in the spiritual war as well. We're in the wilderness. Right and and but we don't have a bronze snake that we have to look to. We have the cross to look to, and and one day we're going to enter the promised land, and there's going to be a conquest, but not a not a symbolic small scale conquest. It's going to the whole world will be the Lord's, and He will wipe away all evil and 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 death and, and injustice. So we're still experiencing the story. Jesus Christ did it on a small scale. I'm not small scale. He did it uh, on a solitary scale, I guess. Uh, the New Testament continually calls Jesus the first fruits. His resurrection is the first fruits, meaning um, it's the first one, and then there's going to be a whole huge harvest coming, and that's us. So we're going to go through this story, too, and we're right here right now. And we're waiting for the last day, and then we're waiting for eternity with Christ. in the But the whole point of Hebrews is that you're still here. And if you're still here, beware. Because what happened to Israel? They fell away. They disobeyed. They gave into some temptation. That can happen to us. So that's, that's, that's it. So yeah, I mean, and then I think when you're talking about uh, sin uh, uh, as a slavery, it has a lot of resonance. Because in many ways, our sins are addictive sins that enslave us, right? So I don't know if that was where you're going. Uh, that added on a little bit more, but definitely... <laughs> Okay. Why, why do you think we have to be in the wilderness so long? Um, for 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 several reasons, um, it reminds me of this uh, of the the story of Job. Actually, uh, recently I was flipping through a, a, a picture Bible of Judah, and then uh, and then he saw this picture of Job, and Job was in rags. And Judah's like, wow, what's going on? Why is he in rags? <laughs> right? Why does he look all sickly and deathly? And I said, well, God allowed Satan to do that to him. And Judah was like, so flabbergasted. Why would God do that? <laughs> uh, I guess the default mode of the human heart is prosperity gospel, right? Why would God do that? And I said, well, I said, sometimes God allows uh, illness and difficulties because he wants to know if we love him more than we love health, than we love money and we love good things in our lives. She's like, oh. <laughs> I don't know if you understood, but... Um, so God, God puts us in the wilderness, right? And if you read the whole story of, of, the, of the wilderness, right, 
God says continually, I, I specifically put you in the wilderness so that you would depend daily on me. So there's no food. So there has to be manna from heaven. Every day we receive. That's why Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. He's talking about that. <coughs> so every day we depend on the Lord. Every day we, we need daily bread. Uh, every day we need to follow this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of cloud by night. We need to follow Jesus. We need to follow uh, scripture. And we're surrounded by enemies. Persecuting. Tempting us. Satan. Patience? Or temptations, yes. Um, and, and, but one day we'll get there. Um, but it's taking a long time. So this allegory of the wilderness, which Israel took for 40 years, is taking us 2,000 years. So far. So far, yeah. Are there seeds of the story in the allegory of the Egyptian wilderness that help us to understand that one day it will apply to everybody, Gentiles, the whole world? Yes. Oh, of course. It's certainly. So all throughout the story, you have Gentiles being grafted in. <coughs> so you have uh, Rahab. Um, you have, uh, uh, for example, Ruth, right, coming in. Ruth was during the time of the judges. So you have all. You have this tiny trickle, a little stream of Gentiles coming into the the people of God into Israel. Uh, but all throughout the prophets, you see this enormous promise that one day it's going to be a flood. And then God's going to call all nations. There's this amazing vision um, of Jerusalem where all the Gentile nations will come bringing their tributes into the city. And that's ultimately fulfilled in the church in the New Testament. So that's what's happening. It's in bringing of all the nations. And then we're going to enter the promised land together. Okay. So, well, I wanted it to... Uh, so we don't see we don't see the promise I mean we're not, we're not in the promised land yet but my question is can, can we see it now because we're born again in Christ yes so that's a good question too uh, we have this resurrection power now right um, the, the, the New Testament continually says we are new creations now so we experience it um like a foreshadowing, uh, a preview, a foretaste of it right now. How do we experience it right now? When we gather together as, as a church, communion with Christ, we experience a foretaste. We're going to experience it in about 10 minutes. So I don't know if that answers your question. That's why on the Sabbath day, we worship together. Because we're, we're entering, we're in it. In it, but then the Sabbath day ends. Because we're, we're waiting for the eternal Sabbath day. I'm going to close. I'm sorry for the sake of time. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, <laughs> Lord, I hope that this class was helpful to everybody. Um, insofar as I was confusing, I pray, Lord, that um, that would all be forgotten. But instead, what would remain is uh, encouragement, is a deeper faith in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, everybody.